0: Hope that is the prayer of your hearts, that God would speak his word to us this morning. It certainly is mine. Now, if we desire to hear God's voice, then it is wise for us to open God's word. So would you do that with me now? Open your Bibles, turn with me to Jude. We've been looking at this book for a, small, uh, for a few weeks. It's a small book. It's only one page if you're using the, the Bible in your row. Uh, in fact, if you're using that Bible, it's on page 1027. Uh, If you have trouble finding Jude, just turn to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation, and then turn back a page. I want you to listen to God's Word as Jude, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, tells us how we are to keep on keeping on in the faith. Jude, verses 17 through 23. This is the Word of our God. But you must remember, beloved Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The best we can tell, Jude was written sometime around the 60s AD, which means it's only about 40 years shy of being 2,000 years old. It's amazing to think of, but what's even more amazing is that if you were to read it without knowing that, without knowing it's a 2,000-year-old book, you would think this could have been written yesterday. Because it shows us a picture of exactly what's going on in our world today. Biblical Christianity under attack. And it shows with great clarity, Jude shows us, that it's a two-front attack. It's a two-front war. There are certainly attacks from outside. But there's also a far more destructive type of attack that comes from within, from inside the church. It's been that way since Jude's time. It will be that way till the Lord Jesus returns. Now, that should not surprise us if we really think about it. The Scriptures call the church the body of Christ. Now, physical bodies are prone to what? They're prone to disease, aren't they, in this world? And they're prone to weakness and to frailty, and so too is the body of Christ in this world. You can think of it, uh, those, those weaknesses, think of it like a virus. It comes to us from the outside, and, and as long as it's on the outside of us, it doesn't affect us, but it's once it comes into the body that it starts to cause problems. That's when it can do great harm. And that's what Jude's been talking about with false teachers in the church. He's, his concern for the longevity and the health of the church is not what's going on outside of it but it's the virus of false teaching. It's the sickness and the disease of immorality. It's divisions. It's all these things that Jude sees creeping into the church, and they can do great damage. The church must always be on guard against these things because on this side of glory, the church is going to be, what our, what our confession of faith says, more or less pure. In other words, this side of glory, there will be sheep and goats in the church. Just because somebody is in the church, it does not make them any more a Christian than being at McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. There will be wheat and tares, sheep and goats in the church. So we should not assume that just because somebody's in the church that they are believers. And Jude has said here, what happens? He said it back in verse 4. These people and godly people, these false teachers, have crept in, un, into the church. And guess what? You haven't even noticed it, he says. And it's going to be that way until glory, when the church is pure. Now, not only, not only does Scripture teach that, but history teaches that. Church history bears witness to it in every period of church history, and especially in periods of the gospel advancing there have always been some who sought to undermine it. There have always been some who sought to corrupt it. And we know that one day when Christ returns, just as our bodies will no longer face sickness and weakness, the body of Christ, the church, will never again face spiritual disease or false teaching or division. But we're not there yet, are we? In the case of the people to whom Jude has written, we don't know who this church is. It was some church 2,000 years ago, but it was every bit as much to you. This is to the church at First Scots. Jude says there are going to be people who teach things that are almost right. You know, that's been the problem for Christians throughout history. It's not that we can't tell right from wrong. It's that we can't tell right from almost right. And that's how false teaching creeps in. You know, the greatest corruptions to the church, it's not they don't come in by somebody saying, I've got a new idea nobody's ever thought of before. We've got new terminology we're gonna use. False teaching comes in by taking the ideas and the terminology of the church and corrupting them so that it means different things than what the Bible teaches. You know, that's what's happening here. Where Jude, to the church where Jude's writing. They're redefining how grace works. All Christians believe that we are saved by grace through faith. That's a non-negotiable. This grace of God, this forgiveness of God is astounding because in the grace of God, He has taken the guilt of my sins and your sins and all who would ever believe upon Christ And he has taken that guilt and laid it upon Jesus and he has taken the righteousness of Christ and wrapped it around us. Grace is absolutely mind-blowing. But these false teachers, they say, well, you know what? Grace is great, isn't it? In fact, grace is so great that because you're forgiven, because you're living by grace, you can now live any way that you want to. You can be as immoral as you want to be because we're not under law, we're under grace. And so they're using grace as an excuse for immorality and for licentious living. They're doing that in their own lives, but not only that, they're corrupting other people in the church. They're saying, you know what? You, you don't need to be so concerned about rules and laws and things like that. That's all Old Testament. Grace has set us free from all of that, and now you can live however you want to live. You can do anything you want to do, and it's becoming an excuse for sexual immorality in the church. Now, that sounds so theological, doesn't it? False teaching always has a shred of what is right against the backdrop of all that's wrong. The grace of God does set us free in an astounding way, but not to go indulge our flesh. It actually sets us free to live for God in a way that we never were able to before we encountered Jesus Christ. It, it sets us free to live in obedience to God because He has given us His Spirit who works in us to serve Him, to obey Him. And when we serve Him, we serve Him not in order to gain His favor like a slave would do. We serve Him as a son or a daughter who loves him, who has received his favor, and wants to please him because he's been so good to us. The law, apart from the gospel, could not do that. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. See, when we've met Jesus Christ, it allows us to do what the law couldn't do, which is to actually love and serve God. But it's not an excuse for sin. In fact, in Romans 6, Paul asked that question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Do you remember the answer?
1: Yeah, why not?
0: No, 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 that's not what he said. By no means. That was a nice way of saying, are you nuts? You would gladly sin against the grace of God? You would take advantage of the grace of God and make an excuse for you to sin against him? Are you kidding me? Grace is not freedom to sin. It's freedom to obey from a new heart as you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And God's grace saves us just as we are but it doesn't leave us just as we are. He saves us to transform us. He doesn't save us so that we'll go back and wallow in the filth of sin. He saves us to transform us into the image of his son. But these people, these false teachers that were in the church, they're saying, no, grace gives us an excuse to live any way we want to live, to do anything we want to do. And it's like a virus that's starting to infect the whole church. And so that's why Jude's addressing it. You remember back in the beginning, back Jude says, you know, I, I really just would love to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I'm not out heresy hunting. There are people like that. You know that, right? They think their spiritual contribution to the church is to sniff out anything that smells like heresy, and they usually do so from the, the freedom of their keyboard. But Jude, that's not how Jude functions. He says, I, I'd rather... I'd rather not even talk about this, but there is something that is endangering the church, so I need to bring it to your attention. I need to draw this to your eyes. That's why he said back in verse 4, you, you need to contend for the faith. That was that word agonizomai. Or it comes from that word and you hear the word agonize in it. You think of a racehorse that is straining with every fiber of its being into the final stretch. Jude's saying that's how you're supposed to live the Christian life. You're exposed to exert every fiber of your being for the faith, contending for the faith, guarding it, cherishing it with all your heart, no matter what it may cost you. That's what we've been seeing thus far in Jude. And now as we get to this penultimate section of Jude, really the final teaching section before that closing doxology, Jude wants to urge us with one thing, keep on keeping on in the faith. Do not let these false teachers who are coming in and they're disrupting the church and they're leading people astray, don't let them lead you astray. Don't believe what it is that they are feeding you. Persevere in the faith. And that's what we're going to look at today under four headings. The first thing is I want you to see the call to persevere. By the way, these are listed in your bulletin, so you've got a note taking page there with this outline. But first, you see the call to persevere. Second, the context of our perseverance. Third, the keys to perseverance. And fourth, we're going to see what it means to be a community of perseverance. So first, I want you to see the call to perseverance. It's there in verse 17. Jude says, you must remember. Now, Jude's especially talking about this repeated warning that the apostles have given that there would be scoffers in the church, and we're going to come back to that in a moment, but the word remember in Scripture is vital. Uh, some of us are guilty at times of, of perhaps our spouse says, hey, we." Will you get to such and such? Will you take the trash out? Whatever. And you think, yeah, I'll get to that later. I'll remember later. And you remember when you are reminded that you did not do it. This is not a passive sort of remembrance. This is actively seeking to keep this truth constantly before your eyes. It requires constantly, intentionally orienting the the reality of your life around biblical truths, We need to remember these things, don't we? Because so often we can fall for lies. So often we feed ourselves lies. Just think about your own heart. Do you ever fall into a a mode of self-pitying where you feel like things are just so unfair, you deserve better than what you've got? You know, that's an anti-gospel way of life, isn't it? The gospel tells us everything we have is far better than what we deserve. Sometimes we let our minds run away from us, thinking things that are not only unhealthy but are unbiblical. Sometimes we can see others, perhaps like these false teachers who are going out and they're sinning, they're they're living licentious lives, and perhaps we think, you know, if I could just break the bonds of Christianity, if I could just get out from under this yoke, then I could go have fun like they are. You know, those are the lies that we feed ourselves all the time. And it's against the backdrop of those things that Jude says you need to constantly set before yourself the truths of the gospel. You need to recalibrate yourself, not in the direction of your ever-changing feelings, but the never-changing truths of Scripture. And it's in those truths that we are to persevere to the end. We sang that just a moment ago. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. In other words, Christianity will never, ever, ever change. And you and I have a duty until Christ calls us home to persevere in the realities of the gospel. And that's important because we live amidst a culture that has sold us a bill of goods when it comes to salvation. And the idea is this. If you just walk an aisle or pray a prayer, the sinner's prayer, you are now safe. You are secure for eternity. Now, I I think there are many people that have been saved that that the Lord has used that process in to bring about their conversion. But the idea that a one-time act that has no lasting impact on the rest of your life is, a saving, is saving faith, that is utterly untrue. True saving faith is a gift from God that will produce in you lifelong perseverance. Philippians 1, 6, I am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We saw that back in Hebrews chapter 12, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's why the Bible presents salvation not as a one-time decision, but a lifetime race, a lifetime marathon. And the problem with the way our culture has sold evangelism is there are a lot of people who think they're believers but aren't. There may be folks in here who think they're believers because they prayed a prayer or even perhaps because of church membership but there is no ongoing perseverance in the gospel. True salvation is the gift of faith given to you through the Holy Spirit by which we take hold of Jesus Christ. And when we take hold of Jesus Christ by faith, we do so because he has already taken hold of us. And those whom he has taken hold of he will keep to the end. In fact, if you look back at the introduction, look at verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who's doing the keeping? He keeps us so that we keep hold of Him. Those who are truly by Jesus Christ will hold on on to him because he is first holding on to us. This is the doctrine of perseverance. True conversion will produce perseverance to the end. He won't let go of you. The way we know he won't let go of us is because he won't let us let go of him if we are truly his. Now that sounds really easy, doesn't it? To persevere to the end. But Jude wants us to understand We do so in a world, seen and unseen, that is constantly seeking to pull you away from Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Young people in the church, perhaps you have always known parents who have sought to train you up in the nurture and admonition of Christ, and and that is a wonderful thing. That is the parents calling to do. Do you also realize that? That there are forces of darkness out there whose chief desire is to pull you away from Jesus Christ. See, that's the context of our perseverance. That's the context of the Christian faith is that you and I are living in an age in which there, Christ is holding us and yet there are many things that are seeking to pull us away. So that's our second thing here, the context of perseverance. Look at verse 17 again. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Let's deal with this last time thing here. I hear this a lot less than I used to, but people would look at at the newspaper, they would look at the chaos of the world, and they would say, this world's gone crazy. We must be living in the last times, aren't we? Or they might say it a little differently. We must be living in the last days, Now, in a sense, they're certainly right. They're looking at the evilness, the evil and wickedness of the world. They're seeing it seemingly escalate. I don't know if it's escalating or if we're just much more aware of things that we wouldn't have known about before because we have this 24-hour news cycle and access to everything going on in the world. I don't know about that. But, you know, the scriptures tell us we are not going to know when Jesus is about to return. Our duty is not to predict when the last days are, but to be faithful through all of them. See, when the Bible talks about last times or last days, it's not talking about a quantity of days before Jesus returns. It's talking about the entire period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So are we living in the last times? Are we living in the last days? I think we are. I think the church for the last 2,000 years has been living in the last times because the next major event in God's redemptive process will be the return of Jesus Christ. So we have been for almost 2,000 years living in the last days. So when we see the Bible talk about last days, it's not not so that we can predict when Jesus is going to return. It's a reminder that we are to be faithful until Jesus returns. Jude, in mentioning the last days, reminds us here that the context in which we are going to be living Christian faith will be a context of scoffers. Uh, his language here, he says, remember what the apostles told you in the last days or last time there'll be scoffers. It seems to say they said it over and over and over again, almost ad nauseum. Every time you heard from the apostles, they were warning you about this, that it is not going to be easy to live the Christian life. There will be assaults on your faith, both seen and unseen assaults. That's the context in which you and I live, that there are some who desire, seen and unseen, to undermine our faith. Jude calls them scoffers. Most of us think of scoffers as people who poke fun at or ridicule Christians. That's certainly part of it, but the bigger picture is that the scoffer is one who believes that biblical Christianity, as found in the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is utter foolishness. It's utter foolishness. They're not so much scoffing at us, following it. We should expect to be seen as fools in the eyes of the world. They're saying to God, we know more than you do. We know more than the Bible knows. You know, here's how scoffers say it in our day, and you've heard all of these things. Well, you don't actually believe the Bible's trustworthy. Don't you know it was written by... I'm always amazed when some skeptic picks up the Bible, they think they've come up with something that undermines the faith that no Christian for the last 2,000 years has seen. It's not, uh, they, as much as they think they are intellectually strong, it's really just arrogance that would lead to that. They might say, sure, people thought those things were true 2,000 years ago, but now we know more. Scoffers today are going to say, it's right. It's right to create division. When a church departs from the Scripture, you must depart from that church. That's, how many, that's really how this church ended up here. Was There were many men and women who saw that the churches they were in were not faithful to the Scriptures, and they wanted a church that was going to, above all else, proclaim the Scriptures. And so they had to rightly divide themselves from that church, in a sense, because that church had already divided itself from the Word of God. We praise the Lord for those men and women. But most divisions in, in church are not about that kind of stuff. They're about hurt feelings and personal preference. And that's not surprising because what happens in the church is you have a catastrophic collision of two different kinds of people. Jude told us, remember this back in, in verse 10, He said, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He says, on the one hand, you're going to have these false teachers who do not have the Holy Spirit at all, and so all they can do is reason like animals, and then you're going to have sincere believers, and of course, it's going to create division in the church. It's interesting. This is fascinating to me. In in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul made a point that I had never seen, I had never really understood until seven or eight years ago. Paul is talking to the the Corinthians. They were a church that had so many problems. One of their major problems was divisions in the church, people causing dissension. And the Apostle Paul says to them, you know, divisions have to happen in the church so that you can see who is really genuine. Most divisions, if you listen carefully in a church, it will reveal worldly people with false faith, and it will separate them from those with sincere faith. Now we don't we don't uh, get this in the English translations, but Jude actually seems to be saying these are the people that are creating divisions, and it sounds like perhaps they're the ones saying, you know, you Christians, you're the ones creating division, you're the problem causers we 're just trying to be good folks, and here you are your Bible thumping fundamentalists. Can you imagine people doing that shifting the blame in division in fact that 's exactly what 's happening in our in our country. Just think about this for about the first two hundred and fifty years or so of well, not quite that uh, for the first couple of centuries in America, if you held to a biblical sexual ethic, you were in a vast majority of people. If you still hold to the exact same things you held to ethically when it comes to sexuality, things like gender and marriage, if you still hold to the same things that you held to 30 years ago, you are now viewed as narrow and bigoted and phobic. Have you changed at all? Probably not. But the world has changed so much in 30 years that what was once the majority view now is looked upon as this odd problem-causing view that needs to be done away with. This is part of the reason there is so much resistance to biblical Christianity in America because biblical Christianity refuses to capitulate on sexual uh, ethical issues. And the world says, you Christians, you're the ones causing division. Not at all. But the world has strayed so far from biblical sexual ethics that all it can see is that we're a bunch of troublers of Israel. So the first thing is they cause division. Second, Jude says they're worldly people. You know, sometimes worldliness is seen as a virtue in our day. Somebody understands how the world works. They can deal very shrewdly with it. But biblically speaking, worldliness is not a virtue. A worldliness stands in contrast to godliness. A worldly person has their thinking and their acting shaped not by the principles of Scripture, but by conforming to the world around them. Let me show you Paul's great explanation of worldliness and how we're to battle it as Christians. Romans 12 verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and, and pleasing and acceptable. For worldly people, their only point of reference is their own base natural instinct. For Christians, our point of reference about the world is Scripture. There's a great quote about worldliness by an author named David Wells. And if you've never read Wells, I'd really encourage you to read him. He says, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I know you didn't catch all of that. Uh, uh, let me summarize it. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And that's what, what these false teachers are doing. They're bringing their own base instincts into the church and allowing it to dictate the beliefs of the church and the practices of the church. That's how they're getting these things, like grace allows us to be sexually immoral. They're, they're taking these concepts that they really don't understand and end up blaspheming them and they're using them as excuses for sin. And so worldliness is is the second sign. Now Jude's functioning almost like a doctor here. He looks at these symptoms of divisiveness and worldliness, and he says, do you want the final diagnosis here? These people are devoid of the Spirit. They're completely lacking the Holy Spirit. Outwardly, they may appear to be Christians. They may talk the talk really, really well. But not only are they not fit, to teach in the church. They're actually not believers at all. The Holy Spirit has never come into them, making them new creations, never given them the mind of Christ. Now, Jude is not saying, here's how I feel about them. He's saying, this is a diagnosis based on scripture. You just think of of what the scriptures teach us about what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a person. Romans one four calls him the Spirit of Holiness. He creates holiness in us, so that not only we begin to obey the Scriptures, but we love to obey the Scriptures. Galatians five twenty two and twenty three, which our, our Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, in here has been looking at, it's the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know if the Holy Spirit lives in somebody? Well, the same way if you know, the same way you know if 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 a tree is an apple tree. Or an orange tree, you look at the fruit, is there fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jude says, you look at their lives and there's no fruit of those things. There's only divisiveness and immorality. And Jude says, you know how else you know the Spirit isn't in them? Because they're not persevering in the faith. Philippians 1.6, which I referenced a moment ago. He who began a good work, and you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. These people are wandering away from biblical Christianity. Therefore, they must not be sincere Christians. Now, Jude is not saying this so that you and I can go, whew, thank God I'm not like those people, like the Pharisee. Jude is saying this so that you and I can understand this is the context in which we live. We are surrounded by what he calls scoffers. And he wants to tell them that so they can keep on keeping on. That leads us to the third thing. I want you to see these keys to perseverance here. There's three or four things Jude says we're to do in order to be sure we persevere. Look at verse 20. He says, Building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us are not great grammarians, and we don't like to have to, deal, to dig back into our grammar toolboxes that we learned in sixth grade, but there are two very different types of speech here that are really important for us. There are participles, in other words, how we are to go about something, what activities are to mark our lives, and then there's one imperative, do this. That imperative is the center of this text. And it's actually the third thing. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you do it? Building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, it sounds strange to us to think we have to keep ourselves in the love of God because we didn't earn the love of God in the first place. So how could we keep ourselves? Well, Jude is is calling us to be watchful and guard ourselves that we might not be led astray. Y'all, when we're done with Jude, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to go straight into Revelation. Not the whole book of Revelation. We're going to study just the first couple of chapters of Revelation. Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, churches that started well, but they ceased to contend for the faith. And they fell away. And the first one is going to be the church at Ephesus, a church planted by Paul and pastored by Timothy. And the Lord Jesus says, You have lost your first love. You've begun to be consumed by other things other than the love of God. That's what you used to care about, but now you've become so distracted. By these other things, that the love of God is no longer the center of your life. We're going to see what it is to keep ourselves in the love of God as we look at the church of Ephesus. But Jude says there's a few things you should be doing if you're believers to be sure that you persevere in the faith. First, in verse 20, he says, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. I think what he's talking about, if you remember back in verse 3, he used the word faith and he was talking about the whole corpus of Christian doctrines. The faith once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. It's what we believe as Christians. In other words, Jude is saying here you need to train yourself in what we as Christians believe so that you are not led astray. You you, you remember that, that illustration about how law enforcement officers learn to detect false currency. It's not that they go and study every counterfeit bill out there. That would be impossible. There's new ones being produced every day. The way they learn to recognize false currency is by examining the real thing. Beloved, the way you guard against false teaching is knowing right teaching, knowing biblical teaching. We don't come to those conclusions by watching pastors on TV. We don't come to those conclusions even by reading good stuff like the Westminster Confession. As wonderful as a document like that is, we come to knowledge of the truth by reading Scripture. If you're looking for a mechanic, he needs to know something about engines. If you're looking for a doctor, he needs to know something about the human body. If you want to persevere in the faith so that you can discern truth from error, you need to know your Bible. It's as simple as that. You must build yourselves up in the most holy faith so that you are not led astray. This is so important. I plead with you to realize this. It is the norm in American evangelicalism to be crazy about a Jesus we know nothing about. It's an emotive Christianity, but it hasn't captured our brains. And the reason so many today in the church in our world are seduced away by false teachers is because they are so undernourished with the truths of God's word. The solution, Jude says, is build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Then he goes on and he says, you're to keep praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be praying in the Holy Spirit? Is that some sort of ecstatic experience where you say all these weird words that you've never heard before? People, some people would say yes. That's not at all what it is. It's simply sincere godly, spirit-motivated prayer. In fact, if you ever have a prompting to pray, have you ever had one of those promptings to pray and then you ignore it? I should really pray about this. I'll, I'll get to it later. Those promptings come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works prayer in us. So when we as Christians pray, we are praying in the Holy Spirit, And so Jude is saying here, and this is very ordinary, he's saying, you want to persevere in the faith? You need to be men and women of prayer. Matthew Henry said, those who live without prayer live without God in this world. Prayer is the means in which God guards us from temptation, guards us from falling into sin, which otherwise might pull us away from him. Do you realize that? Scandalous sin and false teaching cannot draw you away unless you have first pulled up the anchor of prayer. If you stop praying, you are ripe for being led astray. Third, Jude says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You know, the, these false teachers, they're living for this world. They're living for, for sexual pleasure in this world. And Jude says they're getting their reward in this day. And when the day of judgment comes, it's going to be an awful day for them. In verse 14, verse 4, he said they've been designated for condemnation. Verse 13, he says darkness, bl- darkest blackness is reserved for them. Verse 15, they'll be judged and convicted for the unbeliever. The return of Christ is the most dreadful day possible. For the Christian, that is the day in which all of our deepest longings will be met because we will see Jesus Christ face to face. This is the bright future for the Christian, a day that we long for and wait for with tremendous anticipation. Worldly people seek their reward in this world, but we seek our reward in the world to come because Jesus himself is our reward. What a joy it is when our eyes are fixed on the world to come and our our joy doesn't rise and fall with the circumstances around us. It is anchored to something that cannot be taken away. It is anchored to future hope. When our joy comes, not by getting our way in this world, but by seeing our Savior face to face. When our eyes are fixed there, persevering in the faith becomes so much easier. You cannot simultaneously fix your eyes on Jesus and fall away from the faith. Let me ask you, have you ever known anybody that once seemed to be a believer and then fell away? I bet most of you have. If you haven't yet, you will. How did that happen? You know, we're not able to do spiritual autopsies of a dead faith, of exactly what went wrong, but we know this, they cease to keep themselves in the love of God, to live their lives in awe and wonder of God's love. You know, that's what false teachings do. They obscure and dilute the beauty of the love of God in the gospel. The gospel is so good, you cannot improve upon it. So everything that comes to it that is not biblical Christianity necessarily takes away from it. And it steals our joy and our hope. Uh, False teaching cannot offer you anything that compares with the truths of the gospel as it's taught in God's word. You've got Jesus Christ. You're called sons and daughters of the Most High King. You've been brought into his family. You've been given the Great Commission. You've been assured of eternal life. Nothing in this world can compare to that, and Christians must settle for nothing less than that. Christians who keep themselves in the love of God are not vulnerable to the false prophet's weak sales pitches. There's something else significant here in the text. Look at verse 21. Again, it's not just keep yourself in the love of God as if the only thing he's concerned about is, Alex, you need to make sure you do this. Michael, you need to make sure you do this. It's keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, Judas saying, don't just be concerned about you. That's what sinful human nature does. We are concerned about me, me, and me. We are curved in on ourselves. Judas saying, Don't just be concerned about yourself as if the only thing that matters is that you make it to glory. We need to be concerned about each other, bringing each other along, getting each other across the river. In other words, we're to be a community of perseverance, a community of people who spur one another to keep on keeping on. That's the last thing I want you to see, this community of perseverance. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, let me tell you, Jude is making an assumption here, and it's a right assumption, but it's not one that's always lived out in the church. And the assumption is that you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to be radically, sacrificially, intentionally committed to each other's well-being. We're going to be radically, sacrificially, intentionally committed to seeing each other grow in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is to do. We're to be a grace-filled people who aren't just in it for ourselves. We don't just want to go to heaven alone. We want each other there. We want to draw each other along with us. And this should happen proactively. It's God's purpose in the church to create a people After the image of his son, a people who look like Jesus Christ. And so it ought to be our job, our desire, to pour our lives into one another, presenting one another mature in Christ. That's what what ought to be uh, uh, second nature in this church, to pour our lives out, that others too might cross the river with us that others would persevere in the faith. Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you pouring your life into? Uh, You should be able to come up with a list easily. Parents certainly at the top of your list should be your children, your spouse. But everybody in this room ought to have a list of people, at least in their minds, whom they are pouring their lives into. And Jude tells us, that's going to look a little bit different depending on where they are. In fact, there's sort of three groups here in this last section of people who may be struggling. There's the doubting, there's the duped, and then there's who have become devoted, those who have become devoted to false teaching. How do we respond to each? Well, he says have mercy on those in doubt. If you have false teachers in the church, they're going to cause some people to question what's being taught. They're going to cause some people perhaps to doubt the faith. How do we respond? Jude says, with great mercy. This is sometimes hard for churches that are serious about contending for the faith. We can forget about mercy. We can care more about winning arguments than winning people. We can become contentious rather than contenders for the faith. So he says, show mercy to those who are in doubt. Well, what about those who've been duped? Those who are starting to go down the road of false teaching, he says, save them by snatching them out of the fire. Now, clearly, Drew's not saying you can save their eternal souls by your own works. He knows that only Jesus Christ can do that, but he's saying, remind them that only Jesus Christ can do that. Call them back to the true gospel. Call them back to the membership vows that they took when you see them starting to stray away. You know, that metaphor, he says, snatch them back. It's really the word harpoon them. Saving them, snatching them out of the fire. The metaphor is striking. When there's danger of fire, you wouldn't quietly say, hey, I want you to come this way. You would do everything you could to snatch them out of the fire. If a fireman won't snatch people out of the fire, they're of no use. Christian, that is your duty as well. When you see people straying, to snatch them back. And then third, what about the devotees, the people who have been led astray? They've become false teachers themselves. He says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. You know, our hearts should break for them, realizing that if it were not for God's grace, I would have done the exact same thing. But you can't let the virus infect the whole church. If somebody's going to persist in false teaching, it needs to be excised. It needs to be removed. Church discipline needs to step in to protect the peace and purity of the church. And if the person is unrepentant, then they would have to be removed from the church. But we do it with mercy. Jude's reminding us there is often a weakness in churches where we have a high view of God's mercy in our own lives, that he sovereignly showed us grace when we were completely undeserving, but we aren't merciful ourselves to others. Jude says, when people are struggling and stumbling away, be a safe person they can talk to. Go to them, speak to them about the truth, but do it with great mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Someone who understands the wonder of the mercy of God will be quick to show it to others. Beloved, this is life in the church. You and I live our faith out in a context that is utterly opposed to us, to us loving and glorifying Christ, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. This is part of the reason we need the church so badly to hold us accountable, to spur us on, to snatch us out when we start to feel the heat of the flames. If we really understand grace, it won't tempt us towards immorality like the false teachers, but it'll teach us to show mercy to one another and help one another make it across the river. Keep on keeping on in the faith. Well, how do we apply this text? Let's talk for a moment about divisions in the church. God has given us several years of incredible unity and peace in this church. I'm so thankful. But we're not immune to it. We're not immune to division. And as I said, certain things, if it's prescribed by Scripture, if it's a matter of piety, those are the times that perhaps... Division may be necessary, but so much of what causes division in churches today isn't about the integrity of the gospel. It's about personal preference. It's about carpet color. It's about music style. It's about decorations in the sanctuary. In such cases, rather than letting our preferences divide us, let us humble ourselves and view one another as more important than ourselves. If you want a picture of that, look at Philippians 2. We have to guard against divisions in the church, because not only are they destructive to the life and health of the church, they are displeasing to the God and Father of the church. Second, what are you doing for those who are wandering, those who are doubting? I want you to look around here. There are probably people that you can look around and say, you know, I haven't seen such and such in couple weeks, a couple months, maybe a couple years. You know, your, your inclination might be to say, I wonder what, wonder what the pastor's doing about that. Well, that's right. That's a good inclination, but you should have every bit as much of an inclination to ask yourself, what am I doing about that? Have you pursued them with mercy? If someone in this church... We're led astray by a false teacher, and it will happen. Would you love them enough to fight for them? Would you love them enough to speak truth to them? Would you be humble enough for them to listen, or would you just want to lecture them about why they're wrong? Are you a safe person that somebody could come to? They see your humility and your love for Christ. Christ. Would you love them enough to help them doubt their doubts? Are you trained enough in the scriptures to teach them truth? We've got to be a church that diligently works together to help each other keep on keeping on. Finally, Jude has called us to contend earnestly for the faith, and I want to ask you this afternoon to take time to survey your life Are you contending for the faith? Is there tangible evidence in your life from this week that you are contending, that you are uh, seeking for the glory of Jesus Christ to be known in this church, this community, and in the world? Are you pouring your lives into others for the sake of the gospel? I always wonder this. Why is it that cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and others, the people are so committed that they will go knock on doors to tell people about what we know is a lie? We know because of Scripture that we have the truth. Why are we not infinitely more committed to contending for the faith than they are? If we love the truth, we must contend for it. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we praise you for the truth of the gospel, and we do not claim with any arrogance that we have come to some knowledge of the truth by our own intellect, by our own ingenuity. It is solely by grace that we have the truth, because you have taught it to us in your word. Teach us to contend, not be contentious, but to contend